Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame's wide receiver depth chart took another blow last week when Joe Wilkins Jr. was sidelined with a Liz Frank fracture in his foot. Now the Irish are down to five healthy scholarship receivers for the rest of spring football practice. With wide receivers on the brain, we reached out to former Notre Dame wide receiver Bobby Brown to chat about the position and the start of the Marcus Freeman era. Bobby, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Bobby, before we get into the wide receiver talk, some breaking news happened a little bit before we started to record here, and Notre Dame announced that in 2023, it will play a game in Notre Dame Stadium against Tennessee State which will become the first FCS school that has played against Notre Dame football and the first HBCU to play against Notre Dame football. What is your reaction to hearing that news? Awesome, awesome, awesome. As a proud, proud uh, product of a mother who went to an HBCU, Bethune-Cookman, what used to be Bethune-Cookman College, now is Bethune-Cookman University. I wish it was Bethune-Cookman but we'll take Tennessee state. And I think uh, this time we should have a little more of an advantage over Eddie George. Cause I I was there when we played him and uh, he was a hard person to take down. I think we should have more of an advantage to take him down, but I think it it is a good sign for where college football is going and the parity in the sense that they're allowing, uh, uh, you know, FCS schools to, to come and take advantage of that exposure and that platform uh, and, uh, and as long as Notre Dame's not sleeping the wheel, uh, we should be able to, to, to beat them soundly. But the opportunity for a Tennessee State and Eddie George as a head coach and, and those young men on that team and, and the, the category HBCU programs in, in general um, to take advantage of this, to play Notre Dame on, on such a national stage and international, to, to be frank. I think is is um, is indicative of, of where we are with opportunities when it comes to college sports, and I love it, and I and I love that Notre Dame is 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 a part of it. Yeah, the um, there may be a little bit of jet lag coming back from Ireland. They have the Navy game the week before, but uh, yeah, that's uh, I'd rather I guess go against an Eddie George coach team than have to tackle Eddie George. I'm sure Eddie George is trying to figure out if he can get just one more half of eligibility for that game. (laughs) But uh, uh, having seen him in person uh, in the horseshoe, man, uh, he was was an amazing running back. And I'm wishing him well as a head coach. I know that Deion Sanders and what he has done there at Jackson State um, opened Pandora's box with some of these greats going uh, and, and, and using their football knowledge to improve uh, both the football on the field and then their business knowledge to improve things off the field for HBCU programs. So I'm wishing uh, Eddie George the best. Uh, I'll be rooting for him every week except that one. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's talk about this wide receiver situation a little bit. Um, You know, Notre Dame, the numbers are low with wide receivers. You know, they had a couple things go not their way at the end of the recruiting cycle they lost two receivers both of whom I believe were going to be early enrollees um and then you know they could have gotten Kevin Austin possibly to stay although his combine numbers and um you know what he did at pro day with uh with catching the ball from Jack Cohn he's really helped himself a lot 
in terms of the NFL draft. So I guess, Bobby, in today's football, what is the right number? How many receivers do you need on your team to feel good about the numbers part of this equation? Uh, the good news is good news and bad news. Okay. The, 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 I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is we we are not at that number. Uh, you can't have <laughs> just five healthy receivers with one coming in, and and, and you know Matt Salerno being one of those five uh, in spring right now who was a walk on and is thought of more of a special team contributor um, than uh, someone you would count on in the offensive scheme. Uh, we're, we're not at that number. I think you need to be at least at least uh, eight or nine. Uh, and that is because with certain spread formations, you you might have, you know, five receivers on the field at one time. And, you know, depending on who can play in a, in a running back position to then, you know, shift or, or motion into a different uh, position on the field, uh, you could have five receiver sets. And so to, to only have five uh, healthy in spring and I think, you know, at least one, if not two of those, you're not thinking it's going to play a big role in our offense says that, that we're in trouble. So that's the bad news. And the good news is uh, for the young receivers, right? You got Lorenzo Styles and Deion Colsey who, who, who did well last year. And, and this gives them opportunity to show their development over uh, the winter conditioning and, and going into spring, you know, the bodies are changing now, their mindset, their understanding of football is changing now. Uh, and, and, and then you got, you know, uh, a young player coming in like Tobias Merriweather, who, um, you know, is uh, and I think I said his name right. The six five yeah. receiver. from yeah. OK, uh, 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 you know, the good news is these young players have an early opportunity to show up and show out. And that uh, not only is good for the receivers uh, and their development at an early stage, but it's also good for recruiting because that tends to be a, a catalyst for other recruits when they see, oh man, that guy went there and played early. Uh, that has seemed to be something that other recruits use to make their decisions. So uh, I, I might be just trying to find the silver lining here, uh, <laughs> but I think there is some good news in, in what, what is obviously a, an injury situation and a depth situation at the receiver position. Um, and, you know, it, you never know when your opportunities are going to come, but in this situation, all the receivers that they have are getting instant opportunities to show what they have. And, and confidence is how you get on the field and, and building that confidence in a new coach, Marcus Freeman. These receivers have an opportunity, an amazing opportunity to show what they can do. Bobby, I think part of what concerns me the most is that I think it just sort of hurts these guys in terms of the amount of reps that they, they're required to take now in spring. I right. mean, I think, um, it sort of affects the guys they're going against too. Like not all the defensive backs are going to get as good of reps when there's only five scholarship receivers available and the quarterbacks that are whatever quarterbacks running with the number two offense might not be throwing to the, to the, to adequate receivers. How, how widespread do you think that impact is? Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, there is a domino effect. And you pointed it out, I think, very accurately, Tyler, in the sense that, um, you know, the defensive backs, especially when it comes to one-on-ones, um, it, it, it's where the there's a lot of heat in the kitchen. Uh, in spring football, one-on-ones, there's a lot of heat in that kitchen. I think that, unfortunately, because of the depth, you've got to turn the heat down. Uh, as a team and as an offense, you don't want to risk anyone else getting hurt. Uh, and as a defensive backfield that I thought, you know, could use the, the the good reps 
um, they don't get those necessarily in spring where where you can take risk and, and start building confidence as a defensive back. So it, there is there is a, a domino effect. And then the quarterback room. Right. Because, you know, when you only have five receivers um, while at that age, right, at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, you think you're invincible. The body isn't <laughs> meant to just go rep after rep after rep. So there's going to be some load management, dare I say, to use the the, the uh, very uh, unfavored uh, NBA term. But there's going to be some load management. You've got to make sure that you, you know, uh, not shut the guys down, but you've got to limit the reps because you want the reps to be full speed. And you've got now five players and their bodies are, are built just like other bodies. and they're, they're not meant to be completely invincible. So. Uh, and, and, but I do think again, and maybe I'm just the, the consummate optimist here. There's opportunities where, because the running back room has a lot of depth because the tight ends, right. Have at least more depth pound for pound when it compared to the receiver room, um, using new formations and putting people in position to see if they could, um, you know, add a new wrinkle and line up out wide and run what would typically and traditionally be a wide receiver route uh, on downs where, you know, second and one downs where you got the entire playbook open to you. I think this is where you start, you know, trying those things out. Let's let's move a, a tight end out there and see what he's able to do. Let's move a wide, excuse me, a running back to a wide receiver, a traditional wide receiver spot and see what he can do. And I think this is where you you, you sort of test just how, um, diverse your playbook can be. And, and Tommy Reese is a, as a young, very, very innovative uh, offensive coordinator. I think he's in a good position now to really kick the tires on those other positions and to see whether or not there's versatility in putting them in positions that would traditionally be from a formation standpoint, a wide receiver spot. Bobby, um, they are definitely going to go looking in the portal. How what they are able to pull out of the portal and how they'll do at Notre Dame. That's what we don't know. You know, Notre Dame was really lucky with your nephew, Cody Riggs, who was the first grad transfer for, that Notre Dame took in, in this line of grad transfers. And they've been better lately. Their last few cycles in the portal, they've gotten some players that have been starters for them and productive. So my question to you is, just kind of reflecting back on Cody's experience and Cody took the hard way, man, that kid got his masters in a year yeah. and was, I think taking finals around the time the NFL draft was going on. Uh, but, but how difficult was that transition for him uh, to come in and, you know, earn a, earn a spot on a pretty good team um and just adjust academically yeah it, it was a, it was a challenge and i remember when i first brought it up to him he he said something to the effect of oh you know you must be crazy um because he was going to be a uh, not only a starter but a captain on that florida team it would have been his fourth year really fifth year because he was starting the year that he broke his foot where he would have gotten significant time on that team and um, the academic part of it, and it was a you know sort of the grad transfer. It, it was the the new um, frontier for Notre Dame football with grad transfer. So something that hadn't been tested before. But the academic opportunities was really what I used to attract him to the opportunity, and, and 
Uh, it worked out well for him. He had to work his butt off and sometimes, you know, uh, hours and hours in uh, the library or, or in some group study. And, 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 you know, that was after hours and hours of pra practice and film study. Um, and uh, but it worked out for him. He worked really hard to get it done and it's paying off for him. It paid off for him on the football field, getting an opportunity to be seen and, and get the exposure and then eventually going into the NFL and having um, you know, a few years there where he was able to live out his dream. And, and then the transition for him, having a master's degree, uh, the transition for him was a lot easier and he's doing great things now in finance. And so I, I hope that Notre Dame is, is using that as an example for other, uh, whether it be transfer portal kids or grad transfer kids to say, you know, Notre Dame, even when we are participating in this new frontier of grad transfers and the transfer portal, Notre Dame is a special place and we do it a special way. Uh, and I think just being consistent with that and being true to that, having the integrity in the program and, and the offering that you put out there for kids is going to attract the right person. And, and, you know, sometimes I hear the the, the phrase uh, transfer portal and it just it drives me nuts because I, I envision like, you know, sitting on the dock of the bay all day in Florida and trying to go fishing. I, I was never into that, man. I'm just not patient enough for it. <laughs> It sort of feels that way when it comes to transfer portal. You're sitting there just just hoping, They're hoping that something bites. And and I imagine that when it comes to the wide receiver room, uh, Marcus Freeman and Tommy Reese and and um, you know the the entire offense is, is hoping that indeed something bites. I know you've got uh, you know Stucky, a new wide receiver coach, and you've got these young receivers. So. Uh, may, may, maybe the young receivers are hoping nothing bites. <laughs> so, so, so their, their position is solidified, but the way uh, football is played this way in this day and age, but more specifically the way Tommy Reese normally calls plays, you need more options. You need more bodies. So, you know, it just, it's a, it's a natural progression that the transfer portal is going to be an option. Bobby, I'm curious from your perspective, guys that are injured like Avery Davis and Joe Wilkins, how much can they build some chemistry with the quarterbacks, even if they're not healthy? Is 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 there some value to that? Is there an ability to do that, or does it come, or does that have to come with on the field work um, once those guys get back in the fall? There's different forms of chemistry. There, the, most of the chemistry that we talk about and analyze from from our positions now, you know, I, I, I'm also you know. Uh, uh, provider when it comes to content doing podcast stuff the most 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 of the chemistry we talk about is on the field chemistry um, when we do our analysis but the truth of the matter is that there's a different form of chemistry that is just um, you know a trust and relationship chemistry and uh, knowing that that you know especially when it comes to Avery Davis someone that has a lot of experience uh, you know that that he indeed can can go out there and help a young player by just saying hey man your alignment is messed up or you know, the, you know, letting them know what the defense is doing pre-snap. Um, you know, um, th there's a different type of chemistry that I think that uh, players that are, are unfortunately injured, a Joe Wilkins and, a, and Avery Davis, they can build that that more uh, intangible uh, relationship chemistry with the quarterbacks by availing themselves to the young players, by making sure they're in film study and breaking it down for the young players. Um, there's somebody that I think is in a perfect position. It's a, it's a player like Jaden Thomas who, you know, didn't play as, as, a, as a young player. And we don't know much about this is the time for him to get on everyone's radar and show this is why you recruited me and, and I want opportunities. And 
you know, when I look back umpteen million years ago, I was in that position where we had injuries and it was my time to show show up and show out. And, and I was a fortunate, I was fortunate enough to do that. And that's how I got my opportunity. So, um, you know, the, the, the Avery Davises and the, and, and, and the Joe Wilkins of the world who have been around, who have made plays, who have been trusted with um, getting out there and getting opportunities now for them, they can absolutely build a different type of chemistry and not only the, the, the quarterbacks, uh, and film study and helping the players see what they see as, as veteran players, but also the coaches. The coaches are looking very closely at, you know, what do you have to offer when you, when you can't go and and give us, you know, the certain number of snaps in, in spring football, what else do you have to offer? And, and as a, a new head coach, you better believe Marcus Freeman is not only looking at who can contribute on the field, but, but who are the leaders in his locker room? The people that when he's turned his back, when he's not with them, uh, after practice or after games that he knows uh, are going to be uh, the gentleman um, saying, hey, man, we got to do it the right way because the sacrifice uh, that we have put in, uh, we've got to make sure that the sacrifice extends beyond just the field of play. And that's how you come up with a, a great team that is, is uh, prime, in prime position to win games. You, you got to do more than just make plays. You got to be productive citizens in the in the community, in the classroom. There's so much that you have to do. And so I think these players now have that opportunity to show, well, I can't go and run, you know, whatever, 20 routes uh, in spring in practice. I can do anything and everything other than that, make sure that our players are ready to play when the fall comes. Bobby, um, Chancey Stuckey, wants to and this this is regardless of numbers wants to be less position specific he wants the guys to learn all the receiver positions right doesn't want to pigeonhole somebody in the boundary or field receiver or slot receiver he wants most of those guys especially like somebody like styles to be able to learn all three mm -hmm. when you were playing did you do that or were you a specific role in terms of a wide receiver and what do you think about that concept i fought to get on the field man i just talked about my spring experience so i wanted to know every position uh and then i did the same thing at the nfl level when i when my originally i got signed by the green bay packers and i remember taking that playbook and taking some some index cards and really diving into what every receiver does and why they do it um, and I love hearing that Coach Ducky new to the, to the role uh, here at Notre Dame, but I think that his vision for the players knowing all of the positions and not necessarily uh, being pigeonholed into one particular position gives you so much more diversity and it gives you so much more confidence that indeed if you have the similar situation in the fall, you have injuries and 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 we we really want to live that next man up philosophy, well, that requires uh, players to know more than one position. And, and I think that's the way all receivers should think of it. With young receivers now as a youth football coach, I teach them the same thing is that you need to know what everyone is doing and why they are doing it. Because at any point in the game, um, I want to be able to put you in a different position, right? I want to, I want to make sure I have versatility in my alignments and my formations. And the only way to do that is, for you to know all the positions and you to understand in, in, in each play what we're trying to do and why we are trying to do it. Uh, and uh, this is the time to really put in the hard work. And, and the, you know, while the 
you know, the chemistry majors are in their own labs, right? You know, they're doing lab. This, this is our lab. Spring football, you know, winter conditioning, then spring football is our version as football players as, as our lab. You got to really dive into to what we're trying to do as an offense. And I think as receivers, you need to know what everyone is trying to get done on each play and be, you know, just like the NBA now, right? It's a positionless uh, NBA you need to be positionless when it comes to the wide receiver room and be able to play all three, if not four, and in certain formations, five receiver slots. Bobby, we mentioned Kevin Austin a little bit earlier in his career. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on his pro prospects as someone who never quite reached his potential at Notre Dame due to a suspension and some foot injuries, um, and then instead of returning for another year, Notre Dame decided to go into the NFL draft and put up some impressive testing numbers at the Combine. What what, what do you think uh, lies ahead for him in the NFL? He's a Fort Lauderdale kid, Broward County. So I, I, I was, um, every time he's on the field, I was rooting for him. That's just what we do as, as a Florida native and, and Broward County, Fort Lauderdale kid. Definitely, I was rooting for him. Uh, I was not a fan of his decision, to be frank. I thought with one more year, he could cement himself as a first-round uh, wide receiver just because of his physical abilities and uh, NFL teams are always trying to find a reason why not to draft you higher, why not to pay you what you think in your mind, in your heart, you deserve. And I think Kevin Austin's very limited resume gives them the uh, just ample enough question to, to make him um, a later pick than he probably would have been, absolutely than he would have been if he could have had a, a, another healthy season of productivity. Um, but I get it, right? I, I, I As I selfishly wanted to see this Fort Lauderdale Broward County wide receiver come back. I get it. You know, right. That these players are a little different and um, it has been ingrained in their minds to when the opportunity comes, take it right. Because a bird in hand is worth more than one in the bush. And while that is true, the Notre Dame experience for me and, and really playing my brotherhood, um, you know, and I, and I do say brotherhood because that's what we were and continue to be as, as adults with our own kids. Uh, some now that I even communicate with have their own grandkids, right? That, that I'm getting to that point now. And um, uh, I, I loved it. And I would encourage anyone to stay as long as you think from a financial and business standpoint, it makes sense. I guess Kevin Austin and his advisors or his, his family thought it was time to go. Uh, it hurts even more seeing what the receiver room looks like now <laughs> and not having um, a ton of receivers coming in. We had the two, uh, uh, commits, uh, decommit. And so that made it even more painful. Um, I thought that Kevin Austin was in position to do great things this year and to be the center focus of our passing game. Um, but I get it, man. Everyone's got to make their personal decisions for whatever personal reasons that they have. And I wish him well. I do like that he has tested very well in both the combine and in his pro day. And, you know, he's probably helped himself some, uh, not nearly as much as, as having another year of consistency and productivity, but he's helped himself some, and, and I'll cheer for him in the NFL just like I did uh, while at Notre Dame, um, again, because for a lot of those kid, man, that's what we do, and I, I wish him well. But, um, you know, not to be you know, captain obvious, but we definitely could have used his services one more year. Bobby, turning our attention to the head coaching situation, like to get your thoughts on Marcus Freeman, and then I've got a follow-up 
It has to do with Bob Davey after you give me your initial thoughts of what you've seen from Marcus. You said Bob who? I'm just joking. <laughs> I, said, um, I should have said Bob Davies. Right, Davies. Yeah, I, I, I messed it up all the time too. I still, I still mess it up all the time. Um, Marcus Freeman, I think, is off to an amazing start, uh, not just because of what was an amazing first half <laughs> in our bowl game, uh, and not just because of what he has done on the recruiting trails. But I think what Marcus Freeman has done in identifying what makes Notre Dame unique, both with reaching out to former players and making them feel as though uh, they are just as important uh, a part of the program as any recruit that that he is speaking to on the recruiting trail i think that was was amazing uh, i saw this week that he's he's uh, going to uh, make sure that the players are still doing the walk from the mass and he's gonna do that again and uh, uh, he is hitting all the right buttons when it comes to understanding what notre dame is and why it's unique why it's special but also uh doing so in you know 2022 when recruiting is paramount and you got to get the top players. I, I think he's off to a phenomenal start when it boils down to it. It does come down to what you do between those lines, uh, how you adjust when it comes to a game manager, um, the morale of the team, when, when the going gets tough, whether that be in game or in season, you know, it's inevitably going to happen. You're going to be tested on those things. And, and that's where the scrutiny is going to be. Uh, placed, but for my money, I'm betting on him because he's done all the right things uh, to this point. And uh, it, it it helps when you've got good recruits. It, it helps you make in-game adjustments. It, it helps you when it comes to X's and O's. And, you know, I, I always tell people, man, you know, you know, you, you can't win you no know, no horse race without some thoroughbreds, right? He he's making sure he goes out on the recruiting trail and getting the thoroughbreds, getting the dogs that he needs to go in a dog fight. And uh, I, I like where he's at. I like where the program is at. And you know, minus the receiver room, which I think is um, you know a manifestation of attrition and injuries, and and so there's a lot of things that go into what the receiver room looks like now. Um, but other than that, you know, there's talent everywhere. And he's bringing in more. So uh, I like where he's at as a coach. I like where he's at in terms of connecting to what makes Notre Dame special. And I like where he's at uh, in terms of recruiting. The, my follow-up is when Bob Davey was going through his first season as a head coach and he was promoted as a defensive coordinator, could you tell as a player what his missteps were? Could you tell what – he was struggling with what he was good at. Did you have an awareness of that or was it, were you too far removed from that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old at that time. So I, 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 I look back on it and I, I, I do have certain things that came to mind. I do have things that I remember thinking, oh man, like, you know, he didn't do X, Y, Z, or he should have said it this way or that way, but I was comparing him to Lou Holtz. And, you know, if if we're being fair, at least from wins and losses perspective, Brian Kelly is on that same that same playing field. Right. He, he's all time winning as coach at Notre Dame. So you're going to compare him to Brian Kelly. I think the difference is, is that, um, you know, when it came to um, Lou Holtz, it was already cemented that that people looked at him as one of the greatest 
college football coaches ever, just based on what he had done and his progression. And, um, you know, with time that, that, um, you know, image of Lou Holtz, I think it, it, it grows even more with time. I don't know if the same thing will happen with Brian Kelly, but the truth is, um, Marcus Freeman will always be compared to Brian Kelly. And Brian Kelly is the all-time winningest coach at Notre Dame. Brian Kelly just got a very lucrative contract to go coach in the SEC. So with that as the threshold or the bar that has been set with his predecessor, um, you know, Marcus Freeman is going to always have big shoes to fill. And as a 20-year-old um, myself in that, that day and age and, and that those years and, and that moment, yeah, I had some things I thought he'd done wrong. And I'm sure these current players have, have, have their own image, but seems like a lot fewer things on that list when you hear the players respond to Marcus Freeman, when you see um, they were the biggest advocates for him to get the job, when you see their reaction when Marcus Freeman was named their, their, their new head coach, when you see how engaged and active they've been in helping uh, the, the coaches in, on the recruiting trail. It seems as though they like what he's doing and, and they believe in him. And that goes a long way when it comes to morale in the middle of the season, when it's nice and cold and dark, which happens very quickly in South Bend <laughs> during the season. Um, the morale is what gets you through those practices. And I think um, for me, Marcus Freeman seems to be the exact thing that Notre Dame needs at this exact time with this roster. Bobby, you've alluded to a little bit of the stuff you have going on in your life right now. Can you tell our listeners what you're up to these days to, to get them up to date? Tyler, if you throw me an alley-oop, I'm a dunk it, man. And that <laughs> is an alley-oop. Uh, in addition to the, the things that I'm doing throughout uh, my, my daily life, uh, I am a proud co-host of a podcast, and that podcast is Ball Hog Sports Talk. Um, ball hog is what I used to call myself. And that, that was my vanity plates at Notre Dame. I felt like it was a negative connotation for basketball, but a positive connotation when it comes to football and playing receiver. You got to want the ball. So uh, ball hog sports talk is, is where I provide content. I love doing it, doing it with Reggie Farima, a former defense alignment there at Notre Dame, uh, whose son could have helped out our receiver room, but decided to go to Northwestern instead. But oh, well, I digress. <laughs> Uh, and one of my buddies and um, uh, classmates at Yale. Um, and so we have a, a great time doing it. And if anyone is looking for other podcasts to listen to, please give us a shot, you know, uh, and, and uh, hopefully it'll be something that you enjoy. It's where sports business and entertainment collide, and it's the Ball Hog Sports Talk. All right, Bobby, that's all we got for you. Good job with, this, with the alley-oop there. Uh, we appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and uh, we'll catch up with you again sometime soon. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Anytime you extend the invitation, I'll be here and go Irish. All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or on the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First question is from ND Bay on the Insider Lounge. What has been your biggest takeaways from live practice views? Um, and he has another question. Wide receiver is extremely thin after the latest injury. Do you expect more players hitting the portal after spring ball that could interest Notre Dame? So let's start with your live practice takeaways first, Eric. Well, they are very, very good stretching team. I'm kidding. Um, you know, a couple, we've had a couple of practices where about half of our viewing window has been stretching and then we've seen drills. And then we had one where we saw an entire practice and that was incredibly, incredibly valuable. 
And so my takeaways from those experiences have been one, I've really got a sense of the way Marcus does business and practice. And there is a difference in how Marcus ran practice, what he does during practice, and uh, then there was with Brian Kelly. My second takeaway would be kind of the relative speed of the freshmen and the younger players. I, I think that's in drills, I can kind of get um, some kind of sense like Jadarian Price, for example, I did not expect him to be as fast as he was relative to the current players on the roster. Um, Tyler Buckner's improvement, you know, just seeing him make all the throws in practice. Um, you know, I don't know what his reads are, but you can watch him kind of go through his progression. Sometimes you can watch his decisions. I really feel like that's valuable. And then, then I feel like, again, especially in the um, scrimmage periods, getting a sense of what the strong position groups are and where those groups have to go. Now, sometimes it's difficult, you, you know, like if there's a lot of passes being completed, is it because the quarterback's so good or the cornerbacks are struggling? So you, so you have a little bit of that question, but it's still – I think a really valuable thing for me. Yeah. Uh, my three biggest takeaways would be that the running back depth is legitimate. Um, Audric Estime and Janarian Price, I think are, are ready to play. Um, so adding, having that in addition to Chris Tyree and Logan Diggs, I think is incredibly valuable to, to Notre Dame's office, especially when you're talking about the receiver position being a little bit um, down in numbers. Um, so I think that uh, has really stood out to me. I think the defense is playing with the physicality that that certainly is important. Um, and, and I think you can just, especially from that full practice, you can get that sense. Um, and that's something that they're really emphasizing and, and really embracing. And then the safety position is, I think, in really good hands. Um, there are lots of options there, which seems like a, doesn't seem like something you, I can remember having said about Notre Dame safety group. Um, maybe since I've been covering Notre Dame over the past decade, uh, I, there, I, it, it, it I, now there's certainly guys that are unproven, like Ramon Henderson and Xavier Watts haven't done a lot in their Notre Dame careers. Um, but I think those guys have bright futures. I think Brandon Joseph is really good. Um, I, I think Houston Gr Griffith is probably the biggest question mark to me in terms of the guys that have played. I think DJ Brown, um, has some, uh, value in this defense um so the safety position i think is in really good shape right now and that's uh certainly a positive for notre dame and something that i thought was pretty noticeable in practice um to Andy Bay's question about the receivers do you expect more players hitting the portal after spring ball that could interest interest notre dame yeah i do and um there's going to be fresh inventory so to speak Right. Coming up in the next few weeks, because a lot of teams are finishing their spring practices and they're deciding, OK, do I want to be a part of this team? Not everybody that is upset with their place on the depth chart is what's going to be in the portal. There will be guys that are at the top of the depth chart that decide, hey, I want to play in the NFL. There's an opportunity at Notre Dame. Why don't I go jump? Uh, over there and see if I can be a starter 
there and help my NFL stock. So there's going to be some pretty good names coming up in the next few weeks. And the market is going to move very quickly because those players have to be in the portal, not, not destination, but in the portal by May 1st to play next season without having to sit out. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't know at this point who those portal receivers will be, but I think there's a pretty good chance that someone or some ones uh, are of, of interest to Notre Dame. So we'll have to wait and see how that develops, but I would imagine there um, will be some people that fit the fit what Notre Dame is looking for. And I, and one person they, think that could be is Harrison Wellman, who is a, a, a division three receiver that Notre Dame has offered the opportunity to potentially walk on and earn a scholarship. Um, he hasn't made a commitment decision yet. Um, I think um, uh, Notre Dame is ho- probably hoping that there's probably some better candidates than just that. Uh, but that's sort of where, where Notre Dame is at right now. Next question is from at Buster Bivin. Should Michael Mayer start at the X receiver spot? Can Notre Dame play without an X receiver? Well, what I like about this question is the thought of Mike Meyer doing some different things, flexing him out, putting him in the slot, um, moving him around the formation so that he's harder to defend. I would not do it at the expense of having an X receiver, and I would not make him an X receiver. He's too valuable as a tight end, but again, he's not your, he is your conventional tight end, but guess what? He's also your flex tight end. He's the prototype for both of those. So his versatility, you know, to really take advantage of that. I don't, you know, Notre Dame can play with two receivers at times. I don't think that's a smart way to go into a season or even a game thinking that you're going to play the majority of your snaps with only two receivers. And they have enough players to fill those spots. I mean, we talked about Chancey Stuckey wanting people to get used to playing uh, those different X receiver spots. And X is the field receiver. So you have Braden Lindsay, you have uh, number 21, Styles, Lorenzo Styles. You have, I think, you know, we've listed on our depth chart Tobias Merriweather. To start there, he's got the kind of speed. He's not your conventional looking field receiver, but he has the speed to play to the field. The other thing about the X receiver is now, again, we're getting going from the Brian Kelly, Tommy Reese cosine offense to Tommy Reese on its own. But the way Brian Kelly's offense worked best was when there was a dominant X receiver. When there was Will Fuller at that position or Kevin Stefferson when he was, you know, healthy and out of trouble and so forth, it put a lot of pressure on the defensive coordinator about what to do with that X receiver if he could run by your cornerbacks in one-on-one coverage. And so having, I think Lorenzo Styles could fit into that kind of receiver eventually he could be that kind of danger receiver eventually I think he's fast enough not as fast as Will Fuller but he's fast enough and I think he's going to be the number one receiver on this team so I think you're better off with him there yeah I I agree with a lot of what you said um I I think the the variety that 
Chancey Stuckey is trying to play with is, is important. I don't know that it has to be the same person every time. Um, and uh, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that we've drilled down on what like Chancey Stuckey believes is like the ideal make for an X receiver. Um, so I, I don't know if he would prefer that to end up being Deion Colsey at some point um, or something like that, or, or Lorenzo styles. I, I don't really know his view on that specifically. I, to me, I, I don't, I, I don't just from the sense I get it. I, I don't know that it's, it's that important to like, pigeonhole someone in and he even said like the NFL doesn't want guys that are pigeonholed into one position so um, I think we're going to see guys lining up all over the place um, and uh, I think that's I think that's a good thing overall for, for Notre Dame's offense um, my, and Michael Mayer could be lining up in that spot from time to time as well I think that is certainly available to Notre Dame's offense um, so uh, I think variety is going to be the key for Notre Dame. Yeah it's kind of interesting that I think three out of their last four boundary guys have been sub four five guys. You know, Claypool, Boykin, and Austin, the the exception being Javon McKinley, who was over four five. But I think that's interesting that they've had sub four five speed. Yeah. And sometimes I mean, sometimes you want that guy to be able to go up and get the ball too. And obviously we believe Deion Colsey is the best equipped to do that given his size. Uh, but uh, other guys can make plays too, and they're trying to prove that as well. Next question is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R. Bunch of numbers. Do you feel Notre Dame will have a potent passing attack considering that there are no proven receivers and low on numbers? I don't, I don't know that I agree that they don't have proven receivers. I don't know that they have healthy receivers. Um, right. You know, I thought Avery Davis has proven himself. And I think to a large extent, Lorenzo Styles has, and maybe we haven't done a good job of, relaying it in practice, but Lorenzo Styles looks way better to me than he did last year. And I was impressed with the way he was surging last year. I think he's wide receiver number one on this team. And Lindsey's certainly had his moments when he's been healthy. Um, so, and it's not just the wide receivers in the passing attack. You'll have the best tight end in the country. Uh, at least this side of Georgia, they may argue that, but certainly one of the two best tight ends in the country. And Michael Mayer in the passing attack. And I really think all four of the running backs will be effective receivers and uh, even options for the slot receiver when you consider Tyree and Jadarian Price. And maybe even the other two can fit into that, but they certainly can catch balls out of the backfield. So I would not write off Notre Dame's passing attack. And again, we don't know what they're going to add yet. And there could be some really good options um, coming out of the portal. We'll just have to see in the next few weeks. Yeah, certainly the receiving, the depth of the receiving position um, and some of that top end talent has, uh, has things to prove about itself. So we're not looking at a bunch of finished products and guys that um, have had great careers at Notre Dame playing receiver. I agree that Avery Davis is a proven receiver. He's a really good number two, and he's great if he's your third best receiver. Um, I think Lorenzo Styles is going to be great. He's the best receiver. And, and of course, Mayor Michael Mayer is a, a important part of the passing attack. I, 
defining what potent means for Cheryl. I'm not sure. Is is the passing game going to carry Notre Dame on a weekly basis? No. Um, is it talented enough to win Notre Dame some games? I think so. Um, I think that the passing game will benefit greatly if Braden Lindsay and Deion Colsey can be threats in their own ways. Um, and if Tyler Buckner's good, I'm not too concerned about the depth. The, the depth... The depth, as we talked about with, with Bobby, it really hurts practice and those kinds of things. But I think if, if everyone can stay healthy, I think they, they still have enough talented receivers to be good. But it's just like staying healthy is not a guarantee. Um, and so you're walking a very thin line there. But I do think there is a, there is talent in that receiver room. I'm curious what Braden Lindsay can make of his, himself this season um, and whether or not Deion Colsey is ready to make that leap this year um, because those can – those can really impact what Notre Dame's offense look like. Next question is from SJB 75 on the insider lounge. I'm a big fan of Tyler Buckner and I believe barring injury, of course, that he is going to have a strong sophomore season and be even better in 2023. What are your thoughts on Buckner five months from Columbus? Well, he's shown the improvement to me that I expected and that I think Notre more important than Notre Dame expected. Um, they're not really worried about uh, my expectations. And I think in in a lot of ways, Tyler Buckner needed to be that quarterback. And I, I think, you know, a lot of times we've seen these transformational summers, even from players, Ian Book, when he be, eventually became the starter in 2018, Deshaun Kaiser in 2015, where he was a mess in the spring. Tommy Reese himself, you know, Brian Kelly was convinced at the end of spring in 2010 that Tommy Reese flat out couldn't play Division I football. And he came back and said, this is my number two guy and he's pushing number one. So, um, so that's going to be the next stage of it. But I, I think where Tyler Buckner is, is a, a pretty good place right now. Yeah, I mean, he undoubtedly has a bright future. Um, I, I, what I mean, he's in like the prove it stage to me. Like, I think he can do it, but I, I mean, I'm not going to say he's going like guarantee that he's going to do it. Um, I, I haven't seen any signs that he's not capable of being the starter. Um, I'm, but I'm also like to me, I guess it's, I'm not sure how much Tyler Buckner could do between now and the Ohio State game to prove to me that he can be the reason that Notre Dame wins that game. Um, he's just going to have to go out and do, do it um, if, if that's going to be the case. So um, I, I understand why Notre Dame believes in him. Um, and I, I, I want to continue to see that development. I don't know that I've seen enough of him in spring to be like, okay, Tyler Buckner, the real deal. Here we go. And it's not that he, has shown bad signs. We just, we just literally haven't seen enough because we're just not given that that amount of access. Um, but the, the the reviews are positive, um, and uh, I uh, want to continue continue to see him develop as as we go because the, every everything is important for Tyler Buckner with such little playing experience that he has. He he got some last season. And his, his high school experience was extremely limited because of injury and, and um, uh, COVID. Uh, so uh, every, everything is valuable for Tyler Buckner. So uh, I, I, I think um, that's, I, that just makes it him even more of like, a, okay, he's, he's an intriguing enigma, I guess, is probably the best way that I would it, it describe him because I, 
I don't really know. I mean, I, I think it's going to go well, um, but <laughs> I've been wrong before. It won't be the first time if I'm wrong this time. Uh, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. With spring practices half over, which position group has surprised you in a good way and which position group has surprised you in a bad way? Well, I would say the safeties have surprised me in a good way just because one through six, I think they can all play. And they need, I mean, when you think about losing Kyle Hamilton and then having six safeties can play, certainly you don't have anybody as good as Kyle Hamilton, but boy, that, that room is a lot deeper now. There's, there used to be people that flat out couldn't play in that or play at this level, and they're not here anymore. Um, and I think Brandon Joseph can be a pretty good number one, but I just like them all the way around. I don't know that there's a disappointment. I guess if you were going to classify that, it would be the wide receiver room just not being able to stay healthy. But the improvement that I've seen in Lorenzo style has – Styles has really encouraged me from that standpoint. You look at most of the other position groups and you see improvement. I'd say the one where I still have questions about um, is cornerbacks. I need to see more of them, but I really like Jaden Mickey, uh, the freshman. I like his addition to that group. And we haven't seen Kim Hart play. Um, so um, they have the potential to be better. I'm Curious still if they will consider a portal addition there. I, I'm I'm not sure what they're thinking there yet. Um, but again, I think the fact that Mickey has been so strong at this point would discourage um, going after a portal person. And Bracy being better too. Yeah, I, yeah, Bracy would certainly qualify as a as a good uh, surprise individually. Um, he, he has, has played really, and played really well when we saw him and, and the reviews have been very positive about what he's doing. I think Chris O'Leary, um, said, I mean, and maybe this is some, probably some hyperbole, but he says he thinks he can be the best nickel back in the country. Um, and obviously that would be huge for, for Notre Dame if that were to come true. Um, but, uh, I, I, nothing stuck out to me in terms of a bad surprise. Now, maybe that's sort of the, the lack of viewing opportunities that the warts don't show themselves as much when you're, you're looking at small windows. Um, and looking all over the place too, and, during. Yeah. And looking all over. Yeah. Because we, the windows are limited. Yeah. Trying to look at so many different things at once. And uh, it's uh, I, I don't want to, it sounds like I'm complaining a lot, but that's just sort of the reality of the situation. Um, the good surprise was what I mentioned earlier about the running backs, just that those, those third and fourth guys are, are seem to be ready to play. Um, I don't know that I would have predicted that um, a couple months ago. So uh, I think those would probably be – that is my good surprise. The bad surprise, I don't, I don't know that I, I feel strongly enough about something that's gone poorly in spring practice that was surprising to me. Other than just the, the bad wide receiver injury luck, like you mentioned. Uh, next question is from Thunderstruck111 on the Insider Lounge. On Jordan Botello, is he still as advertised – Swagger and explosiveness with a get-after-it attitude. I think Jordan Botello is kind of at the crossroads at Notre Dame. And I think that's 
a good thing for him. He hasn't played his way into being a star. He hasn't played his way out of being a star. Um, he, Jordan Battelle, the equation there is, can he channel all that aggression and rage and, you know, kind of being a, you know, badass um, into production because he's talented and there's a really interesting skill set there. I'm still getting a sense of what the rover slash sniper position is going to be. And um, just the other day, Marcus Freeman mentioned he thought that the Viper and the rover are very close in terms of what they're looking for skill set wise. And then we talked to Al Washington today, the defensive line coach, and he sort of mirrored that um, that opinion. I think we're, you know, again, you see snippets of things. So Jordan Batello is going against Michael Mayer in a one-on-one -on -one drill, and it wasn't pretty. But I don't know that a lot of people would be pretty in that situation. But he struggled so much against Michael Mary. You, you kind of go, well, how is he going to hold up in coverage against um, anybody? Uh, and I've seen him. I saw him in coverage last year be adequate. And, you know, he still can rush the passer. I guess it just really comes down to what he – is asked to do and how mature he is as a player to be, again, be able to channel all those um, assets into production because it can easily get out of, he could be a guy that picks up bad penalties for you. And um, so he's a real guy to watch here over the last part of spring to see how this plays out. Yeah. I, I don't, he's, I think he's struggled with like being sort of this positionless player. Um, he's like a, he's like a tweener um, that they haven't really figured out what to do with him. And I don't think, I mean, from my observations of Jordan Botello, tell him what to do and give him a job to do. And he's going to be good at it. But if you keep sort of changing what that looks like and, and not giving him maybe some comfortability in what he's being asked to do, I'm not sure that that's the best situation for him. Um, now, obviously, you can't. I mean, you can't build your whole defense around what you what you want. Jordan being able to maximize Jordan Batello's potential. I don't. I think he's a good player, but he's not. He's not that kind of player. He's not. We're not talking about like a Kyle Hamilton level player here. Um, but I mean, the things that Thunderstruck said in terms of as advertised in terms of his swagger, explosiveness, and his get after it attitude, those are definitely things that Jordan Batello has. Um, but it's finding how how they can take advantage of that for him. I mean, his biggest impacts have mostly come on special teams so far to this career, to this point in his career, and I feel like that's because they're telling him, okay, this is what your assignment is on special teams. Go out there and complete it. Um, whereas uh, if, he, if he's a, a blitzing rover, um, if that's his role, I think – I thought he did all right against uh, Wisconsin last year in, in what was uh, like a, a set linebacker role for him. Um, so um, – yeah, I don't think I don't think he's going to be a great coverage linebacker, um, but it's, Notre Dame has to find ways to use his skill set to its advantage. Um, and uh, I thought I I thought he would end up being 
a, a Viper end and a, a, a pass rusher. Um, but that hasn't really panned out that way. Now, maybe uh, what he does as a, as a Rover mirrors that a little bit more. Um, and uh, we'll have to see what that looks like. Uh, I think uh, they're certainly willing to play with different packages and, and create certain roles for players. Um, and that's, I think going to be a lot of what Al Golden is bringing to this defense is the different um, situational um, defenses and, and players that can be maximized in those situations. Next question is from Chick Irish on the Insider Lounge. Which assistant coaches have impressed you the most so far and why? That's a hard one because there's that's an impressive new group that Marcus brought in. I'll try to narrow it down. I, I'll, I'll put Harry Heastan number one. I think recruits, the defensive line coach, uh, the head coach, I think everybody has been pretty impressed with what Harry has done in half a spring of practices in terms of bringing that pretty talented but still pretty young group along that has no Jarrett Patterson. I, I just think he – and just the guests he brings – guest coaches or whatever he brings in alone is pretty impressive with Zach Martin and Quentin Nelson and Sam Mustafer and Olin Krutz among them. So I think, would I think number- it looked like Tommy Kramer was at practice today too. Okay. So Tommy Kramer. Um, and then boy, I mean, Mason golden, I would say Dylan McCullough. I like what he's done with that running back group, um, especially getting Jadarian Price. I mean, Price and Estime, I expected Logan Diggs and Chris Tyree to be pretty good. Estime looks really, really improved. There, There's so much more to his game and than power. And just Jadarian Price, now pretty mature kid. But just his philosophy, I love talking to D. London. I had high expectations for that hire, and it's so far playing out for me. Yeah, uh, D. McCullough was one of the guys that I, I thought of as well. He, he's an impressive guy. I mean, I've brought up the running backs multiple times on this podcast, so it's only fitting that I would uh, give him some of the credit for that. His attitude seems to really resonate with the running backs, and I think that matters. Um Harry Heastan, of course, um, you you see the 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 way that that group attacks things. I mean, they're they're staying after practice. I mean, which which didn't necessarily go away under Jeff Quinn, um, but it's 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 obvious how long that they're there. And um, I think the other day it seemed like they were there for a good half hour after practice, if not longer. Um, We were getting close to wrapping up interviews, and there were still offensive linemen (laughs) uh, down on the field going through drills uh, with each other. Um, I've mentioned Al Golden before as someone who's impressed me. The knowledge he's bringing as a defensive coordinator is valuable. Um, he seems to be connected to a lot of the good ideas that we keep hearing out of spring practice, like the red zone installation early on and those kinds of things. So um, those are the guys I would say have stood out, have, have stood out so far. But um, I, I've liked – there hasn't been someone that I've seen like, okay, I don't understand what this guy's doing. Um, now maybe, uh, I wouldn't necessarily like, that wouldn't be my first instinct sometimes, but, um, I think, uh, the, the, those are the guys that I would put towards the top of the list in terms of who's impressed me. 
Uh, next question from at Bridget Go Irish. I know you probably haven't gotten this one. What's going on with Dante Moore? Um, well, what's going on with Dante Moore is uh, he is taking some visits. He took a visit to Ohio State after he took his Notre Dame visit. And that was always in the cards when uh, our Kyle Kelly talked to his father, Otha. Uh, they mentioned that they were going to be going to Ohio State that weekend, and they ended up going to Ohio State that weekend. The philosophy with um, Dante, according to his dad, is that he's not going to have a top three or a top five. He's just going to make a commitment, and then he's going to stick to it. And so I think he wants to, you know, I think his heart is with Notre Dame right now, and he is maybe confirming that by taking these other visits open to the fact that I guess his heart, you could have a change of heart. I think the expectation is still that he'll end up at Notre Dame, but that the timetable of maybe having this wrapped up in April is going to stretch a little bit into the summer, quite possibly. So that is what my assessment of going, what's going on with Dante Moore. How about you, Tyler? Yeah, including in that story, his father did say that Dante intends to make official visits, um, and I'd, I'd still expect him to do that unless he says otherwise. Um, I think Notre Dame remains extremely confident that it can win his recruitment in the end. Um, when that end is, I think, is a little bit up in the air, um, and, and it seems to me that a lot of the people who are being asked about what Dante Moore is doing are sort of trying to tap into um, the schools that are recruiting him rather than Dante himself, because he seems to not necessarily be giving up a lot of information or showing his cards. Um, and so uh, I, I think, I think there could be some, un, there could be some unpredictable uh, timelines or decisions or visits there because um, I don't know that, anyone is necessarily extremely plugged in to Dante Moore. Um, so, so we'll see how it all plays out, but yeah, I think Notre Dame still likes where it sits with him um, and is going to keep fighting to try and hopefully get that to end sooner rather than later. Cause it'll maybe let them exhale hail a little bit. Um, and also could lead to them getting some, some good commitments uh, uh, at the wide receiver position as well. So I think uh, um, Dante Moore is still, um, in a in a spot where Notre Dame really really wants him and has a really good shot of getting him. Next question is from Drew Brennan seventy seven on the Insider Lounge. How would you rate who Notre Dame wants from an offensive line standpoint? Give me their top four guys on the board. Um, I will jump in here. Um, from my understanding um, and interpretation of the top four guys right now are Samson Okunlola. Uh, Monroe Freeling, Charles Jagusa, and Austin Saravel. Those are the four guys that I think um, Notre Dame likes a lot, um, and ha and those guys have uh, a high level interest in Notre Dame as well. Um, uh, Okun Lola, I believe, is the only one that hasn't visited Notre Dame this year of that group. Um, so they're they're working to get him on campus. Um, if that doesn't happen. Um, then maybe Sam Pendleton, who's planning to get on campus soon, um, and as a recent offer, maybe he gets up into that top four. Um, Elijah Page is someone who Notre Dame offered um, not terribly long ago. I think he's a little bit farther down the list, but is someone that Notre Dame is intrigued with too. So that's 
sort of where Notre Dame stands with the offensive line. If, if they get a combination of those four guys, I think that's a pretty good haul for, for Notre Dame. Uh, so uh, I think uh, Harry Heastan has work to do still. Um, usually I, I, when Harry Heastan was in his recruiting prime in his previous stint, um, some of the offensive line commits would be some of the first commits, but obviously he was, he started later on these guys than, than some of the other, uh, other positions uh, have been recruiting. So um, we'll, uh, we'll have to continue to watch how those, how uh, things uh, progress with those recruitments. But I think Notre Dame's in a pretty good spot with the number of those guys. But I think it's, I, I Austin Saraville is not going to be an easy recruitment to win. Um, Ohio state's right in the mix there. Um, uh, Monroe Freeling. Um, he's a guy that I think is there. Oh, Sylvan Absher is someone I, I forgot to mention. I would it, it, say him. It, in, include him on that list. Um, and in terms of guys that I feel good for Notre Dame about, I would probably put him a, a, ahead of Samson Okunlola. I think Notre Dame has a good chance with, with Sullivan Absher, but I think they have their hands full with Clemson in that recruitment as well. Um, so those are the guys that, um, are at the top of Notre Dame's wish list right now on the offensive line. Next question from the entire lounge, another one from Chick Irish, who asked a bunch of good questions. So here's the second one that we chose from him. Uh, which recruit uh, that many might say we are currently outside the top three of, do you think we have a sneaky good chance at landing? Um, I will jump in here too. I don't know if Eric has a, uh, a good answer uh, for this, but um, I, I guess – it's tough because I think the recruiting industry is pretty competent as a whole. So there's not a lot of uh, good choices there. I think we have a pretty good sense of which guys are legitimately interested in Notre Dame and which guys uh, they have a chance with. Um, Rodney Gallagher was the guy that I sort of came up with. Um, I don't know what his current top three is. I don't think he has a, a stated top three or what his perceived top three is. I think, Pittsburgh, Penn State, Ohio State, I think are three schools that are um, contenders for him. So maybe Notre Dame is wouldn't be perceived as uh, ahead of those schools. But um, I know Notre Dame really likes him and, and wants to make up some ground there in his recruitment. So I, I don't think Notre Dame is in a spot with Rodney Gallagher or like where they are with potentially with Braylon James as a guy that could be um, uh, committing to Notre Dame at some point in the near future. Um, Rodney, they, Notre Dame has more work to do with Rodney Gallagher. Um, but I think that Notre Dame could have a shot of landing him in the long run, but there's still work to do there. Next question is from at Mike Devoy one. I'm laughing now at all the people who talked about this being a down year for the ACC basketball, only to have the ACC have three spots in the elite eight, two in the final four and one in the championship game. How were so many so wrong? My theory is that the ACC had a lot of teams that were putting their teams together in November and December. And so maybe they didn't have the impressive non-conference wins. And this is one of the reasons I like the old system of picking teams for the NCAA a little bit better when there was weight on the final 10 games of the season. Um, and there wasn't this quad one, quad two stuff. I think that distorts the difference between teams that already have their team together and ones where the coach has to do some experimenting with lineups and maybe you lose a game to win three or four more later down the road. Um, 
so the ACC teams improved, and they certainly played above their seed in the um, in the tournament. So I think you have all the reason in the world to laugh, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think people are playing the results a little bit here. Uh, I, I'd be curious how many of these people uh, who are sort of puffing their chest about the ACC. Um, had more than one ACC team in their brackets, Elite Eight. Uh, I, I I think the read of the ACC being down this year was was fair. Um, though those ACC teams didn't necessarily have great resumes during the season, um, but those ACC teams played better basketball in the tournament, and that's a sign of good coaching. Um, the the North Carolina team that played in the national championship game isn't the same one that Notre Dame beat in early July. Um, so, uh, I think it's just a, a product. But of, don't you think that some of them were underseeded or, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe the ACC didn't deserve like seven teams in, but was Notre Dame really, you know, an 11 was Miami really a 10 was North Carolina really an eight seed. That's where I would argue that they, they probably should have been higher seeded, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I think that's probably valid. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel strongly that the ACC didn't deserve more teams in the tournament than it received. I, I think certainly you, you can have your qualms with the seating. I, I think that's probably a fair, uh, a fair quibble, I guess, with, with what, what, what sort of played out. Um, but those teams also, I mean, they had opportunities to, to prove that they should be seated higher and they didn't necessarily, uh, take advantage of them at, at, at times. So I, I think, um, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's just a lot easier to say now uh, that those, those teams, and not, I'm not saying that's your, what you're doing, but I think um, it's easier to say now that, I mean, did, did people really think Miami was going to go as far as it did? Um, I don't think anyone was scared of that Miami team by the end of the season, but they ended up making a good run in the tournament. So and people were not terrified of Virginia Tech, and then, and they fell flat on their face. So uh, that's just—I mean, it's just how basketball works. Sometimes it's not that. Right. Uh, but but the I think the Big Ten was ranked so high, and they they kind of piled up quad wins against each other, and maybe the Big Ten wasn't as as good, you know, because they haven't done well in what two tournaments now in a row. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean. I think that's fair. Um, well, I guess the one that I had a, really an issue with, maybe even more than the Big Ten, was the Mountain West, which went out pretty quietly. I didn't understand how those teams were seated so much higher than sure. the ACC teams. But again, I haven't been as involved in basketball as I used to be early in my career. So this quad stuff really... I I'm, haven't bought into that, and maybe I need Ken Palm to explain it to me better. Yeah, I mean, I, I watch Big 12 basketball or Big 10 basketball um, from time to time, but like I, I'm not tuned into to Boise State games, so I I don't I don't know where what some some like some of those uh, conferences that get a, a few teams in the conference. I think sometimes maybe that's become a bit of a fad because those teams have have had some success both during the season. Um, and in the tournament against the bigger conference teams, so maybe they're given more of a benefit of the doubt than they ever have been in the past, and maybe that's something that that shouldn't happen. But um, 
I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm a, like a, a bracketologist in any sense, in, in any way. So uh, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this front, but I, I, I think, uh, I mean, the, the numbers indicated that the ACC weren't that good. It wasn't that good uh, going into the tournament and they, the, 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 the coaches and the players went out and proved that they were better than um, what their resume had had in front of them. Next question from RRH1. Would Notre Dame consider joining a conference if they continue to have trouble selling out football games? Well, there's a couple thoughts that come to mind here. One is the attendance nationwide of it is an issue right now. And we don't know how much is linked to people being, you know gun shy when it comes to going to a full stadium full of people and sitting on top of each other in a era where COVID kind of comes and goes. Um, but even let's, let's take that out of it and say that those numbers were the same without uh, COVID. I think that there are, um, there are considerations again, across the country where attendance was starting to dip pre-pandemic. And um, this is the reality teams are dealing with now. Um, as far as Notre Dame joining a conference, um, here's an easy guide to let you know when that's the right answer. If Notre Dame doesn't have access to the national championship, if they do not have a TV contract or if they don't have a place to house their Olympic sports teams and their basketball teams, that's when joining a conference goes on the table. Otherwise, whatever the question is, the answer is no. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Uh, I just don't see how joining a conference would help sell them more to help, help sell more tickets. I, Anyone that follows Notre Dame knows that when you do things that buck tradition, those are the things that people don't like. Like, so joining a conference bucks tradition. I mean, people, I, there were people that literally tweeted at me today when, when Tennessee state was added to the 2023 schedule, that this was, this was a reason that made, they may consider not buying tickets and, and not uh, donating to the, to the program because Notre Dame is now going to play against an FCC F. CS school, um, which it has never done um, in program history. Um, so I, I just don't, I don't see why, wh how joining a conference would, would help them. I don't, I don't know if the, uh, you, you want more uh, conference opponents to come to the games, uh, like have to have them buy more t tickets off StubHub or whatever. Uh, I, I, so uh, I guess the answer in my opinion is just no, it just, I, if, if Notre Dame joins the conference, it's not going to have anything to do with its ability to sell sell tickets because the TV deal is more important than than, than selling tickets in the first place, anyways. And it's not and it's not like there's no one coming to the games. It's not like we're looking at an empty stadium. People are still paying to come to, to Notre Dame football games. Uh, next question is from Christopher Cruz at Chris ND ninety two. What is the biggest pleasant surprise and the biggest unpleasant surprise? you two have had making the move from the South Bend Tribune to inside ND sports? I would say the biggest pleasant surprise is 
how much I wake up every day happy that I made the move and um, how exciting and a, much of an adventure it feels like. Um, and I guess I hoped that it would be like that, but it really is. I mean, I'm still writing the same kind of stories I was before, but making decisions about coverage and making decisions to get freelancers and photographers and stuff, just uh, really having um, a voice in what our coverage and what everything looks like is so refreshing than having a big corporation that doesn't know our market dictate that to us. Um, so that's what's exciting. What's um, what's the biggest unpleasant surprise? I would say that some people think that we're running a lemonade stand. And why I say that is they'll, they'll still say, hey, good luck in your new venture. And not realizing that what the new venture is, is very similar to the old venture, that the stories that they love are still on the new site. They're just in different packaging. And uh, more and more people are finally kind of understanding that, but it's hard, you know, they, especially people in my generation, they think of newspapers as the end all be all and anything else is, you know, something that's very risky. Whereas I think what we're doing now is really the standard of where sports media is going, that um, newspapers will not be in the forefront for very much longer if they still are. So that would be my answer. Yeah, I'd like to think there haven't, and I don't know that I would say there have been many surprises. And I, I think that's because we thought about this for a very long time uh, uh, about making this decision yeah. and took it very seriously and tried to tried to forecast what we saw were the the positives and the negatives of the move and the risks that were associated with that and the benefits that were associated with that. So in terms of a pleasant surprise, I would say that people around Notre Dame don't treat us any differently now that we work for rivals rather than the South Bend Tribune. I think, um, that was the hope, but it certainly wasn't guaranteed. Our, our work and reputation carries over regardless if we're working for the local newspaper or covering uh, Notre Dame for Inside ND Sports. Um, unpleasant surprise. Um, I, I guess I don't know that it's – surprise doesn't feel like the right word to describe it, but I guess I'm not, I'm not sure I fully processed how exhausting the first few months would be with all the football news and covering basketball and hockey and some baseball. Um, and it's been, it's essentially because we've been going pretty hard at our jobs since the beginning of August, spanning to the beginning of last season. We didn't have any sort of off season breaks or vacations, uh, that we were able to squeeze in there because we were making this transition and because of all the news that was happening at Notre Dame. So, um, I, I don't want to complain about that because I'm happy to be doing what we're doing. Um, I love my job, the, the opportunity to do this, which I, people would love to be able to do this. They, um, and so it's, it's not, a, it's not like there are worse, there are worse things to be doing from, from August through April with, with very little breaks. Uh, but, uh, I, I think that, uh, it certainly does get, it does become a bit all consuming from time to time. And we're, um, we're now that we have three people involved with us, um, it's making that a little bit easier to, to get through things. And, uh, we are, I, I know I'm personally looking forward to the end of spring practice to take a little bit of a, of an, uh, of an exhale. 
Um, and uh, but uh, I think we're doing a lot of great work and uh, I'm, I'm proud of what we're doing. Uh, last question we have is from Andrew Callen at a Callen one asking for a not friend. How much does Glenn Earl, who is notably not Kyle Hamilton and had zero coaches in common with Kyle Hamilton, as far as I know, teach us about Kyle Hamilton's professional career prospects. And for anyone who is unaware, which includes, I believe, Eric, um, this question from Andrew is referring to a clip that everyone was sort of dunking on Twitter yesterday uh, of Ryan Ermani. I'm not sure if that's how Ryan's last name is pronounced. Um, and Braylon Edwards um, saying that they uh, want the Detroit Lions to draft anyone but Kyle Hamilton. That was uh, Ry uh, Ryan's point of view. He, he made that statement. And then Braylon Edwards was chiming in. Braylon Edwards being a former Michigan wide receiver chiming in saying, uh, that Notre Dame hasn't had safeties that were successful in the NFL um, and, and listed a number of players, including Glenn Earl, who, um, <laughs> to be frank, I had, don't think I'd ever heard of personally as someone who didn't grow up following Notre Dame football. Um, he would have been at college. I think, I think he was in the draft in 2004. I looked it up. Um, so that would have been when I was a uh, sophomore uh, in high school. Um, but, but Braylon Edwards didn't mention Harrison Smith, who is notably one of the best safeties in the league over the past decade. So, um, Eric, what are your thoughts on this, uh, this concept that Glenn <laughs> folks like Glenn Errol are an indication that Kyle Hamilton might not be a good safety in, uh, in the NFL? Um, it's, I, I give the person asking the question credit for, being way more on top of Twitter than I was. I saw that clip, but I didn't listen to it all the way through to hear Glenn Earl. Um, and, you know, I, I covered Glenn Earl. I, I mean, it just seems so absurd to compare Glenn Earl to Kyle Hamilton. And, and again, to forget Harrison Smith, um, who's been incredibly effective in the NFL. It just seems like such a stupid uh, thing to say on a podcast, but, you know, not all podcasts are, you know, trying to be objective and make good decisions. They're sometimes driven by emotions and which teams you like and which teams you don't like. Well, I'll tell you, if I were a pro team drafting and there was a college team I didn't like, and to skip on a really good player because I wanted to hold on to that emotion, that seems like really bad business. I, I don't have a good answer here, Tyler. <laughs> uh, I don't think there is a good answer. I think it's just an opportunity to make fun of uh, NFL draft Twitter. Um, <laughs> well, I know that Bobby said before we got on the air, he wasn't really impressed that Braylon Edwards would have a good podcast. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I don't know the NFL draft lead up and everyone talking about players and people that don't want, like how much Kyle Hamilton have those get, have those guys watched. Do you think like, I, 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 I have to assume it's not very much based on their comments. Um, I, I don't pretend to know everything about all the prospects in the NFL draft. Um, but a lot of people who cover the NFL draft, uh, I think do a lot more pretending than having actual knowledge. And even the, even the good people, in that cover the NFL draft or sort of feed the NFL draft, like want for information. Like 
Bruce Feldman had a story the other day that he did a, he did a mock draft and he included some quotes from anonymous sources uh, about the various prospects and they were I think there was three comments about Kyle Hamilton I think two of them were negative and I think one was something about like he, we didn't think he could cover someone in the slot um, and uh, someone said that he didn't think he was fast I was like well <laughs> you know what like it's easy to say that after he ran a <laughs> A four, uh, a four. What he ran at the combine. I, I just, I don't know. I just feel like everyone in those situations. It's like if you want to say something negative about a player, put your name on it. I, I don't know. Like I just don't put a lot of value in 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 what people say anonymously about um, these draft prospects going into it. Um, because I mean, what? What? I mean, even if they say something positive, what is their? What is their? Uh, what is the benefit of them saying this? I, I don't know. It's just a there. There's a benefit to misinformation, especially if you want a player, if you want their stock to drop. There's a benefit to some teams to have misinformation out there floating it. You never. I mean, if you're a team, you never really want people to know what you're thinking because that's part of having leverage for trades and you know. So there, I mean. I remember when Mike McGlinchey got drafted, um, you know, the 49ers never even worked him out, never contacted him, you know, informal interview. And they kept it under the table until they were ready to draft him in the top 10. So, I mean, there's an advantage to not putting out what your true feelings are. So, and I've just seen too much of this. I remember when Ronnie Stanley was supposedly soft and he was dropping in the first round, and then he ends up getting picked in the top 10 and ends up having a pretty darn good career. So I think it's kind of silly season. Yeah, and Jeremiah Usukor, and, and even even the, the people that are drafting are, aren't always good. I mean, Jeremiah Usukorbo had dropped way too far in last year's draft, and anyone that watched Notre Dame football – was like, what are people doing? Like, we were convinced he's a first round draft pick. Then he goes out and has a great season. It's like, it's just sometimes people are wrong and they they latch on to, to ideas that don't actually um, don't have sort sort of faulty reasoning behind them. And then, I mean, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. It, it's not an easy business, that's for sure. But it's um, not. And like my opinion, it's like I see that Sam Howell and Matt Corral are second round projections. I like both of those guys. I, I would take either of those guys. Uh, and I would probably take them in at least late in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I'm glad that's what, not what I do full time. It just, uh, it, it's just a, it's just a weird, weird business. Now I guess people could probably say the same thing about recruiting. Um, it's, it's just that, that, but at an earlier stage. Um, but uh, I think there's, there's less, there's less, uh, like you said, misinformation being spread when it comes to recruiting, like, um, like people, like there aren't coaches bashing, <laughs> privately bashing uh, uh, Dante Moore. So people, so Notre Dame will stop recruiting him and then, <laughs> and then uh, that school can start recruiting him. <laughs> so uh, it is, a, it is a little bit different from, from that point of view. All right. That's it for today's episode of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with a friend. Uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. We're hoping to sort of set Tuesday, at least through the rest of the month, probably, 
um, as the day that we're, we're, we're planning to record podcasts. So if you're looking for some sort of regularity, which we have not been providing uh, throughout the, the beginning of the year, um, that's what we're hoping to do to hopefully help you guys know when podcasts are coming from us and, and also give us some ability to, to consistently line up good guests so we know what we're planning around. So um, until you hear from us again, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. 